Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome to another study of biblical history and eschatology from a full preterist perspective. Last time we began a new series of studies on the book of Romans. We introduced the book by asking and answering five key questions. Number one, who wrote this? Number two, to whom was it written? Number three, when was it written? Number four, where was it written? And number five, which is the most important question of all, why was it written? We noted that Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans for the purpose of promoting unity and koinonia, or sharing or participation, uh, mutually sharing in the one common faith and becoming one body in Christ. There was a danger of the Jewish Christians refusing to accept the Gentile Christians, and also a danger of the Gentiles refusing to acknowledge their indebtedness to the Jews. Paul's major concern in this epistle is to challenge both parties, the Jews and the Gentiles both, to accept each other and unite together as one new people of God. In this session, we need to look at the overall big picture of the epistle. It's always tempting to jump into the middle of the book of Romans and start trying to interpret it without seeing the big picture first. We need to put that overall perspective in place first so that we can see how the various sections of the book relate to each other and understand what Paul is trying to accomplish here in his writing to the church at Rome. Well, before we get into that overview or study of the big picture, let's ask God for his help in our study. Blessed Trinity, whose perfect triune unity provides the basis for an ultimate example of the kind of unity that you want your children to maintain. We praise your holy and matchless name. We are so grateful for your work in the life of Apostle Paul to create a new people for your own possession, with both Jews and Gentiles united together in one body. Help us as we study his letter to the Roman church to understand its message and apply it to our lives properly so that it will refresh our hearts and renew our commitment to offer our lives as willing sacrifices for the advancement of your kingdom on earth, just like your servant Apostle Paul did. This we pray in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Last time we noted how the big concern Paul had, which prompted him to write at least the first twelve chapters of Romans, was his desire to see both the Jews and Gentiles united together in the one common faith. That unity was being threatened by both the Jews and the Gentiles, who were not quite sure they were ready to accept each other as fellow heirs of the kingdom. However, Paul arrests both the Jews and the Gentiles and locks them up under condemnation 
He gives them the bad news first, then unloads the good news on them. Both were lost, but both can now be saved on the very same basis, justification by grace through faith in Jesus, apart from any works of righteousness. Paul thoroughly deals with the Jew-Gentile conflict and shows how the gospel grafts both of them back into the olive tree from which both of them had been cut off. This epistle evidently accomplished what Paul and the Holy Spirit designed it to accomplish. The church survived this threat of the Jew-Gentile conflict and was able to unite both Jews and Gentiles together into one universal church through the work of Paul and all the other inspired apostles uh, by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, of course. We can see that this was Paul's major purpose in writing the letter when we follow his argumentation. And we're going to do that here shortly. We want to look at his argumentation and give us a big overview of it. And I think as we look at that argumentation, we'll see very clearly that Paul's main purpose, I believe, in writing this letter was to bring both Jew and Gentile together in one body in Christ. Some of the commentaries on Romans have done an excellent job of laying out Paul's flow of thinking for us. I especially liked Haldane's explanation of it in his preface to his commentary on Romans. I want to read some of his good comments here for us. Keep in mind that Haldane wrote 200 years ago, but it's still a very relevant commentary for us today. Now, I've modified some of his wording so that it will be a little easier for us to grasp. His style of writing is somewhat challenging for modern ears to follow, but the thoughts he has expressed here about Paul's epistle to the Romans, I think, are very helpful, and they're God-glorifying as well. Out of the over three dozen commentaries that I have on the book of Romans, I liked his survey of the contents of the book of Romans the best. So let's look at what Haldane had to say about the flow of Paul's thinking here in the book of Romans. This is taken from his preface in the front of the book. He says, In the first part of this epistle, chapters 1 through 11, Paul discusses chiefly the two questions, the two great questions, which at the beginning of the gospel were agitated between the Jews and the Christians, namely that of justification before God and that of the calling of the Gentiles. Since the gospel held forth a method of justification very different from that of the law, the Jews could not relish a doctrine which appeared to them novel and contrary to their prejudices. And since they found themselves in possession of the covenant of God to the exclusion of other nations, they could not allow the apostles to call the Gentiles to the knowledge of the true God and to the hope of this salvation, since that implies that the Jews had lost their exclusive preeminence over the Gentile nations. 
The principal object, then, of the Apostle Paul was to combat these two prejudices. He directs his attention to the former prejudice, which is justification before God, in the first nine chapters, and then treats the other prejudice that the Jews had, the calling of the Gentiles, in chapters 10 and 11. In regard to the second main section of this epistle, chapters 12 through 16, Paul first enjoins general precepts for the conduct of believers, afterwards in regard to civil life, and finally with regard to church communion. In the first five chapters, the great doctrine of justification by faith is more fully discussed here than in any other part of Scripture. The design of the apostle is to establish two things. The first is that there being only two ways of justification before God, namely that of works, which the law proposes, and that of grace by Jesus Christ, which the gospel reveals. The first is entirely shut against men, and in order to their being saved, there remains only the last. The other thing that he designs to establish is that justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ respects indifferently all men, both Jews and Gentiles, and that it abolishes the distinction which the law had made between them. To arrive at this, he first proves that the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, are subject to the judgment of God. And since all are sinners and guilty, neither the one nor the other can escape condemnation by their works. He humbles them both. He sets before the Gentiles the blind ignorance and unrighteousness, both of themselves and of their philosophers of whom they boasted. And he teaches humility to the Jews by showing that they were guilty of similar vices. He undermines in both the pride of self-merit and teaches all to build their hopes on Jesus Christ alone, proving that their salvation can neither emanate from their philosophy nor from their law, but only from the grace of Jesus Christ. In the first chapter, the apostle commences by directing our attention to the person of the Son of God in his incarnation in time and his divine nature from eternity as the great subject of that gospel which he was commissioned to proclaim. After a most striking introduction, which was in every way calculated to arrest the attention and conciliate the affection of those whom he addressed, he briefly announces the grand truth which he intends afterwards to establish, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, because in it is revealed the righteousness of God. Unless such a righteousness had been provided, all men must have suffered the punishment due to sin. Seeing God had denounced his high displeasure against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness. The first point which the apostle establishes 
is the ruined condition of men, who being entirely divested of righteousness, are by nature all under sin. The charge of ungodliness and of consequent unrighteousness he proves first against the Gentiles. They had departed from the worship of God, although in the works of the visible creation they had sufficient notification of his power and Godhead. In their conduct they had violated the law written in their hearts and had sinned in opposition to what they knew to be right and to the testimony of their conscience in its favor. All of them, therefore, lay under the sentence of condemnation, which will be pronounced upon the workers of iniquity in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. In the second chapter, a similar charge of transgression and guilt is established against the Jews, notwithstanding the superior advantage of a written revelation with which they had been favored. Having proved in the first two chapters by an appeal to undeniable facts that the Gentiles and the Jews were both guilty before God, in the third chapter, after dealing with some objections regarding the Jews, Paul takes both Jews and Gentiles together and paints a fearful picture drawn from the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures of the universal guilt and depravity of all mankind, showing that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that all are depraved, wicked, and alienated from God. He thus establishes it as an undeniable truth that every man in his natural state lies under the just condemnation of God as a rebel against him in all the three ways in which he had been pleased to reveal himself whether by the works of creation, the work of the law written on the heart, or by the revelation of grace. From these premises, he then draws the obvious and inevitable conclusion that by obedience to law, no man living shall be justified. That so far from justifying, the law proves everyone to be guilty and under condemnation. The way is thus prepared for the grand display of the grace and mercy of God announced in the gospel, by which men are saved consistently with the honor of the law. What the law could not do, not from any deficiency in itself, but owing to the depravity of man, God has fully accomplished. Man has no righteousness of his own which he can plead, but God has provided a righteousness for him. This righteousness, infinitely superior to that which he originally possessed, is provided solely by grace and received solely by faith. This way of salvation equally applies to all, both Jews and Gentiles, men of every nation and every character. There is no difference for all without exception, are sinners. The apostle in the fourth chapter dwells on the faith through which the righteousness of God is received and then further confirms and illustrates his doctrine by showing that Abraham himself, the progenitor of the Jews, 
was justified not by works, but by faith, and that in this way he was the father of all believers, the pattern and the type of the justification of both Jews and Gentiles. And in order to complete the view of the great subject of his discussion, Paul considers in the fifth chapter two principal effects of justification by Jesus Christ, namely, peace with God and assurance of salvation, even in the midst of the troubles and afflictions to which believers are exposed. And because Jesus Christ is the author of this divine reconciliation, he compares him with Adam, who was the source of condemnation, concluding with a striking account of the entrance of sin and of righteousness, both of which he has been discussing. He next shows the reason why, between Adam and Jesus Christ, God caused the law of Moses to intervene, by means of which the extent of the evil of sin and the efficiency of the remedy brought in by righteousness were both fully exhibited to the glory of the grace of God. Since the doctrine of the justification of sinners by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, without regard to their works, which manifest in all their extent the guilt, depravity, and helplessness of man, in order to magnify the grace in his pardon, might be charged with leading some to licentiousness, Paul does not fail to state this objection and solidly to refute it. He does this in the 6th and 7th chapters, in which he proves that so far from setting aside the necessity of obedience to God, the doctrine of justification stands indissolubly connected with the very foundation of holiness and obedience. This foundation is union with the Redeemer, through that faith by which the believer is justified. On the contrary, the law operates by its three strengths to stimulate and call into action the corruptions of the human heart, while at the same time it condemns all who are under its dominion. But through their union with Christ, believers are delivered from the law, and being under grace which produces love, they are enabled to bring forth fruit acceptable to God. The law, however, is in itself holy and just and good. As such, it is employed by the Spirit of God to convince His people of sin, to teach them the value of the remedy provided in the gospel, and to lead them to depend upon the Lord from an awareness of the remaining corruption of their hearts. This corruption, as the Apostle shows by a striking description of his own experience in chapter 7, will continue to exert its power in believers so long as they are in the body. As a general conclusion from all that had gone before, the believer's entire freedom from condemnation through union with his glorious head and his consequent sanctification are both asserted in the 8th chapter, neither of which effects could have been accomplished by the law. 
the opposite results of death to the carnal mind, which actuated man in his natural state, and of life to the spiritual mind, which he receives in his renovation, are clearly pointed out. And as the love of God had been shown in the fifth chapter to be so peculiarly transcendent from the consideration that Christ died for men, not as friends and worthy objects, but as without strength, ungodly, sinners, enemies, so here are the natural state of those on whom such unspeakable blessings are bestowed is described as enmity against God. The effects of the inhabitation of the Holy Spirit in those who are regenerated are next disclosed, together with the glorious privileges which it secures. Amidst present sufferings, the highest consolations are promised to the children of God, here in chapter 8. The contemplation of such ineffable blessings as he has just been describing, here in chapter 8, reminds the apostle of the mournful state of the generality of his countrymen, the Jews, who, though distinguished in the highest degree by their extra privileges, still rejected the Messiah, as he himself had once done. And as the doctrine he had been inculcating seemed to set aside the promises which God had made to the Jewish people, and to take from them the divine covenant under which they had been placed, Paul states that objection and answers it in the ninth chapter, showing first that the promises of spiritual blessings regarded only believers who are the real Israelites and the true seed of Abraham, and secondly, that faith itself being an effect of grace, God bestows it according to his sovereign will so that the difference between believers and unbelievers is a consequence of his free election, of which the sole cause is his good pleasure, which he exercises both in regard to the Jews and the Gentiles. Nothing, then, had frustrated the purpose of God, and his word had taken effect so far as he had appointed it to. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is here fully discussed in chapter 9, and that very objection which is daily made, why does he still find fault, is stated and forever put down. Instead of national election, the great subject in this chapter is national rejection and the personal election of a small remnant, without which the whole nation of Israel would have been destroyed. So devoid of reason is the objection usually made to the doctrine of election, saying that it is a cruel doctrine, since it means that God predestines some to eternal damnation. In the end of ninth chapter, the apostle is led to the consideration of the fatal error of the great body of the Jews, who sought justification by works and not by faith, mistaking the intent and the end of their law. They stumbled at this doctrine, 
which is the common stumbling stone to all unregenerate men. In the 10th chapter, Paul continues the same subject, and by new proofs drawn from the Old Testament, shows that the righteousness of God, which the Jews rejected by trying to establish their own righteousness for their justification, is received solely by faith in Jesus Christ, and that the gospel includes both Gentiles and Jews. Paul expresses no surprise that the Jews rejected it, since this had been predicted by the prophets. The Jews thus excluded themselves from salvation, not discerning the true character of the Messiah as the focus of the law and the author of righteousness to every believer. When the Israelites reflected on the declaration of Moses that to obtain life by the law required perfect obedience, to which its demands must in every case be yielded, they might have been convinced that on this ground they could not be justified by their own works. On the contrary, by the law, they were universally condemned. The apostle also exhibits the freeness of salvation through the Redeemer and the certainty that all who accept it shall be saved. And since faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, the necessity of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is inferred and asserted. The result corresponded with the prediction. The righteousness which is by faith was received by the Gentiles, although they had not been inquiring for it, while the Jews who followed after the law of righteousness had not attained to righteousness. In the prosecution of this subject, the apostle had shown that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and by the most irresistible arguments and evidence that could not be overcome, he had brought in both Jews and Gentiles as guilty and condemned sinners, justly obnoxious to the vengeance of heaven. Had the Almighty been pleased to abandon the apostate race of Adam, as he did the angels, to perish in their sins, none could have impeached his justice or arraigned the rigor of the divine procedure. But in the unsearchable riches of the mercies of God, he was pleased to bring near a righteousness by which his violated law should be magnified and a multitude whom no man can number rescued from destruction. This righteousness is revealed in the gospel, a righteousness worthy of the source from which it flows, a righteousness which shall forever humble the pride of the creature and bring glory to God in the highest. The mercies of God are thus dispensed in such a way as to cut off all ground for boasting on the part of those who are justified. They are, on the contrary, designed to exalt the divine sovereignty and to humble those who are saved in the dust before him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will and without giving any account of his matters 
either justifies or condemns the guilty according to his supreme pleasure. In the 11th chapter, the apostle finishes his argument. He here resumes the doctrine of the personal election of a remnant of Israel, of which he had spoken in the ninth chapter, and affirms in the most express terms that it is holy of grace, which consequently excludes as its cause every idea of work or of merit on the part of man. He shows that the unbelief of the Jews has not been universal, God having still reserved some of them by his gratuitous election. While as a nation he has allowed them to fall, and that this fall has been appointed in the wise providence of God to open the way for the calling of the Gentiles. But in order that the Gentiles may not triumph over that outcast nation, Paul predicts that God will one day raise it up again to communion with himself. In chapters 12 and following, Paul turns to survey the practical results which naturally flow from the doctrines he has been discussing. He was addressing those who were at Rome, beloved of God, called saints, and by the remembrance of those mercies of which, whether Jews or Gentiles, they were the monuments. He beseeches them to present their bodies a living sacrifice to God. In thus demanding the entire surrender or sacrifice of their bodies, he enforces the duty upon them by designating it as their reasonable service. Nothing can be more agreeable to the dictates of right reason than to spend and be spent in the service of that God whose glory is transcendent, whose power is infinite, whose justice is inviolable, and whose tender mercies are over all his works. On this firm foundation, the apostle establishes the various duties to which men are called, as associated with each other in society, whether in the ordinary relations of life or as subjects of civil government or as members of the Church of Christ. According to our views of the character of God, so will be our conduct. The corruption of morals which degraded and destroyed the heathen world was the natural result of what infidels have designated as their elegant mythology. The abominable character of the heathen gods and goddesses were the cause of the abominations of their worshippers. But wherever the true God has been known, wherever the character of Jehovah has been proclaimed, there a new standard of morals has been erected, and even those who reject his salvation are forced to counterfeit the virtues to which they do not attain. True Christianity and sound morals are indissolubly linked together. And in the same proportion as men are estranged from the knowledge and service of God, 
so we will find their actions stained with the corruptions of sin. Where in all the boasted moral systems of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Epictetus, Seneca, or the rest of the Greek and Roman philosophers shall be found anything comparable to the purity and beauty of the virtues enjoined upon us by Paul in the closing chapters of this epistle. Even modern writers on ethics, when departing from the only pure standard of virtue, discover the grossest ignorance and inconsistency. But Paul, writing without any of the aids of human wisdom, draws his precepts from the fountain of heavenly truth and inculcates on the disciples of Jesus a code of duties which, if habitually practiced by mankind, would change the world from what it is, a scene of strife, jealousy, and division, and make it what it was before the entrance of sin, a paradise fit for the Lord to visit and for man to dwell in. Well, those were some very, very good comments to help us grasp the amazing contents we're finding here in the book of Romans. You can see that Haldane had a pretty good grasp of this concept of Jew and Gentile unity and how Paul encouraged both of them to strive for unity by putting both of them under condemnation and then offering them the solution in Christ. And so it's a very brilliant strategy by Apostle Paul, and evidently it worked very well. And we're going to look at that in subsequent sessions. We will talk a lot more about Paul's argumentation here in these first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. I don't know if we'll cover a lot of the remaining chapters, but I do want to deal with the first 11 chapters especially, because that's where the heart of his argumentation is. We need to keep Paul's goal of achieving Jew-Gentile unity in mind as we study the book of Romans. It seems to be the primary concern behind most of the contents of his epistle. Knowing this, this Jew-Gentile unity idea, will help us understand why Paul says these particular things to this particular group of people at this particular time and place. And that is the fundamental goal of every Bible interpreter, to understand as much as we can about the author and the people to whom he writes, and understand why he wrote those things so that we'll know what he meant. In the appendix for the lesson outline, I have included a few more quotes from various commentaries about the purposes Paul had in mind when he wrote this epistle. That will help us answer this all-important question of why it was written and enable us to understand the meaning and message of Paul's incredible letter to the Romans. There are also some outlines of Romans in the appendix. Uh, if you'd like to see an outline of the contents, um, there's three of them in the appendix to help you get more familiar with the contents of Paul's letter to the Romans. 
Well, next time we'll begin looking at some of the text in Romans chapter 1 and try to go as far as we can. Hopefully we'll get into chapter 2 and 3, but uh, at least we'll start in chapter 1 and go as far as we can. That pretty much wraps up our study for this session. So if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to ask me or send to me, uh, don't hesitate to email me. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.